and today with a little favour to ask. Over the recent weeks and months, I've had loads of you get in touch with some great questions and today I'm going to be trying something new with the show. I'm trialling a Q&A segment where I'll be joined by a co-host and elite coach educator, Gerard Jones. Now, these are discussions which are going to be taking place every Sunday evening at 7.30 GMT live on Twitter space if you wanted to get involved directly. Otherwise, I'll be releasing them here every Wednesday on the Coaches Network podcast. So for today's format, it's slightly different, and for around about 30 minutes, each discussion will be dedicated to a question that has been sent in where myself and Joe will be going into some real depth and sharing our views and opinions on the topic in order to leave you with some key takeaways to consider in your own environments. So the favour I'm asking for today, guys, is if you can let me know your thoughts on the new format, and you can do this by getting in touch on Twitter at thecoachesnet. Once again, that is at thecoachesnet. And of course, if you have a question, feel free to send that in too. Hope you enjoy the new format. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Design and practice for learning, obviously, in the recent conversation, we looked at where do we start with session objectives. What does this mean to you now? How do we design practice for learning, and what what would be the alternative to it? You there, Gerard? Yeah, sorry, literally just. Uh... Seeing a message come through on the uh, Twitter space, which is good. So, no, uh, I think it's a great place to start. And for me, I think we've got to really be clear on the semantics. If we're talking about designing practice for learning, so if we base it on that alone, we've got to be thinking about, well, what does learning look like? And, of course, how do we make learning happen and, and make learning stick? So, you know, just going back a few steps, I think we've got to think about and we talked about this uh, in the in the previous episode, uh, which you can all tune into. What what does learning look like for each individual player? So, what are some of their needs? Who's in front of us? Are we planning for those players not only as a group, all together and holistically, but also individually, in terms of what they might need? So, I think for, for me, one of the first places to start is who have I got coming to the practice tonight or to the match? So I'm looking at those individuals and I'm thinking about if we take a session, for example, how am I designing the practice to meet the needs of Tony or Warren or Dean or Yaz or whoever it may be? And that's based on what it is they need to work on or have been working on over a period of time. And it's a it's a semi-balance with what's coming next, right, Yaz? Because you've always got that preparation for the upcoming match. You've always got that preparation for where we are within a curriculum and how, how we're sort of developing players longer term, as well as how we want to develop them within our, our sort of style of play and what have you, our principles. But within that is a huge part of individual development. So what are their strengths and how can we amplify them? What are their areas for development and how are we designing practices around that? So for me, the designing practice for learning looks very much at what activities individually? I mean, there's more detail I know we'll unpack, but in the first instance, I'm thinking about how does that activity support the learning for the player? So is it a case of that it's working on areas of their development or is it just facilitating them? Or is it a case of it's amplifying a strength? And the reason why I break down those three buckets, if you like, is because they might not necessarily be the focused player for tonight, but they're still learning, they're still developing because the overall the practice designers is facilitating them I mean everything should be specific to every player but you get my point in that if we're doing a a possession practice or whatever it may be there might be other primary players that we're really focusing on for tonight for different reasons but because of the activity they're still getting their meaningful repetitions they're still getting challenged so they're still having to make choices so you know for me, it's a case of where are they landing? You know, is it someone that they're a focus? And at which point then we can, you know, how does it amplify their strengths or areas to development? Or some people might say weaknesses, I prefer development. And then 
within that, I would just say you've got to be thinking about what choices are they making. It could be as simple as where are they starting within the practice and what where is the ball coming from? What's the source of the ball location? And how that how can we create varied experiences there? So even those two differences there alone can create some masses about learning because, you know, let's take an example. You know, we talk a lot about 1v1 duels, right? Yars, and we talk about, you know, like receiving skills and we look at a lot of the FIFA content, which is great. There's tons of material right now on the, the training centre where, you know, you see some of the, the, the movements that players are making even from the World Cup where they're receiving behind actions to receive and so forth. That's great. So how does that influence our practice design? And is it that you design activities where there's varied amount of uh, experiences they're going through? So it's that repetition without repetition, meaning that they're not just working on the same thing over and over again, but they're actually working on that principle but on the varied experiences. So it might be where they're dealing with pressure from behind, they're having to deal with pressure from the side, they're dealing where they're always receiving the ball uh, from one angle, it could be from a different angle. So just a, as an initial first bullet point, Yaz, designing for learning, I'm straight away thinking about who's in front of us and then where are they, where are they at on that learning focus for tonight and then how am I design activities to create that varied experience for the player, just around choices and things like that. But I'd be interested to see you know, your thoughts on that and the, everyone else listening or even how you'd, how you'd elaborate it further. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think, you know, first of all, you know, there's there's a lot in there, but I think I'm just trying to put my my mind in the heads of other coaches potentially, and maybe play double advocate. The response might be, well, if I'm not designing practice for learning and taking and, and doing it based on the things that you've talked about, what would I be doing instead? Right? Because I think there's there's that there's that. You know that phrase of let the game be the teacher, or you've re- have you really designed practice for learning there? So there's obviously, you know, like you said at the top of the conversations about the semantics and what you know what we're really talking about in terms of individualizing it, making sure it's bespoke and specific to the players that you're catering for in front of you. But I guess from that perspective, what would you know if 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 the coach was throwing it back at you and said, "Well, that's exactly what I do," but if not taken into the same considerations that you have there. What would be the alternative to designing practice for learning? What else are you going to be designing it for if it's not that? And obviously, I think that will then lead us into maybe breaking down what it could look like and what the, some of the key considerations are. Because I think the other challenge you also have, right, is many coaches, we've, we talk about similar considerations, but our perception of what those considerations actually then look like practically can be very, very different. And maybe the extent of the, the finer details and the nuances within it that we actually consider as part of our planning processes, if you like. No, I think they're great points, Yaz. I mean, for me, if we're talking about learning, right, I think it's important to recognise, well, how do you make learning stick? You know, because it's, it's a great word to use, but what does it actually look like in action? And to be fair, it's very difficult. You know, how do you argue or determine what learning looks like for each person? So for me, you've got to really think about how, how can I observe learning taking place? You know, what's the measure for learning? Because that's a, it's a difficult one to to quantify. Of course, there are some variables we can go off. But I think like, even just streaming it back simplistically and even just thinking about some of the research out there, you know, there's a lot of research around um, retrieval practice, interleaving and space practice. And then what that means is, you know, if we take interleaving, basically where you're you're introducing different information over time. Um, and if you think about versus focusing on a, a pure blocked approach, so within your practice design, you're, you're focusing on this one thing and you're doing it over a, a series of weeks for a long period of time. It's the same thing over and over again, so it's constant. In fact, interleaving is almost the, the opposite of that. You're working on different... Uh, principles, different areas of focus within your session, but you know, instead of blocking it, you you you're bringing things into sort of little chunks, if you like, and you're mixing up different skills. So there might be what that means is it goes back to the repetition without repetition piece, in that you're creating opportunities for players to figure stuff out under changing exam under changing circumstances. So to me, designing learning's got to be around choice. 
what choices and consequences are the players having to to figure out? So it could be as simple as whether it's a you talk there like let the game be the teacher. And we know where people have talked and come that come from. It's been that phrase has been over exaggerated, hasn't it? But or misrepresented. But if we take the example of playing a game, Yaz, but then it's all right, how are you using certain conditions, certain rules, certain challenges? How are you manipulating the area size of certain conditions for certain players within the practice? How are you manipulating where the ball comes from and how it enters into the field? That in itself can elicit different types of problems, choices, for consequences of the players to make. You know, one of the examples we showed on a, a webinar last year, do you remember, was that game where it's like three pitches, mini pitches, and the object of the game, let's say they all start with 3v3, the object of the game was um, if once you score, you can score the opponent's half, but it must be a one-touch finish. So by putting the condition on the one-touch, it's forcing what? It's forcing them to have to combine, which allows time for defenders to get across. That one-touch finish, as soon as you finish, you must immediately run on to the next pitch. So as soon as the person scores, they run onto the next pitch, which becomes a a three v two on the first field, but a four v three on the other. But who's to say the other player hasn't scored? So they've moved on to the other. So then, and then you get the point. And you could put a rule where no more than five on any pitch, but there must be a minimum of a one v one on every pitch. So if that one player scores, they can't run off. They have to stay on. And there will be times where, because of the rules of the game, that practice is creating overloads and underloads. And it's creating opportunities where players have to figure stuff out and recover onto pitches, dealing with those challenges. You know, And if you're 1v1, it could end up being that you're 1v2, 1v3. So the individual tactics now, the strategies players have to use, to, to whether the focus is to play forward, let's say that's the principle, play forward, break a line, well, it's different because there'll be times where they might have to run with it. They might be just have to <laughs> go for the forward pass and bypass everybody. Or they might have to dribble the way out of trouble. And then because of the rules of the game, it's creating that chaos and therefore consequence. So that in itself is just a great example. Or it could be, you know, you put another rule. So you're playing these little games, but you're saying, hey, if the ball goes out of play, the nearest player goes and presses. I want a 1v1 duel on the outside every time. So what you're saying is you don't want kick-ins or throw-ins if the ball goes out of play. You want them to sprint and chase that player down and create a 1v1. So that elicited behaviour is you're creating a duel on the outside. Players are not forced to switch off. And players are travelling as the ball travels. So they're having to concentrate for even longer. So these little things are great opportunities where you're you're interleaving different scenarios within the session. And I think that's just a great example. And then the space bit is how you space that out within the session. So how many times a week are you practicing? Um, You know, and even in the session, you know, how many activities are you doing? Because, you know, we've all heard the phrase, less is more, haven't we, Yaz? But it's actually like, what does that full session look like? If, If we're talking about a menu of learning, which I know me and you are going to go on about in our next webinar, what does that actual menu of that activities look like within that session? You know, are we giving them too much and what's the space in between? So we're allowing them time to really digest the information that we're giving them without overloading them. So I think, and then the retrieval is, you know, you're great at this as yourself, you know, and now you even like probing me, asking me questions and how you talk about all the time check for understanding. It's that piece around, well, how well do we know what they know? So, Two questions I love to, to ask the group, the audience to write down listening is, one, how can you plan for what they know? Because then that will, that, you're starting to think about what, what do they know, like how well, and how can we check for understanding? Because in that same two questions, you're going to get the same answer, which is, you know, we're not making any assumptions. So what, what do we think they're going to have before they come to the practice? And then during the practice... And after, how are we checking for that ongoing understanding so that we're able to retrieve that information and store it? 
and get the players to understand not just what we're doing, but why. So it's not so much the what to coach, it's the how you're coaching. So it's the how and the why. And that, for me, is a great example of how you're designing learning. Because if, you know, if I go full circle back, it's what conditions, challenges, targets, how you manipulate the goals, how you manipulate certain rules, whatever it may be, that causes a change and a choice and a consequence for the player to have to solve. So the, the role of the coach then becomes this learning designer where they're setting problems and they're observing behaviours as opposed to providing all the answers. And then I think coaches can build on that, you know, because then it's just a case of, well, how simple is my practice? You know, because I know the game is complex, but how can we create this problem, be able to explain it simply to the players that they can grasp it straight away, but the players can evolve with it during the session, whether it's a simple rule change or whatever it may be that, that creates that problem, you know? So, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Yaz. Yeah, I mean, well, there's, there's a lot in there, but it just got me thinking, you know, on a few different things. So, you know, when we talk about design and practice, what are we really talking about? Are we talking about the practices themselves or actually are we talking about how how well we, you know, we cater and consider the coaching behaviours and interactions that are aligned to the delivery of the practice, if that makes sense. Now, you right. know, I'm starting to now think... <clears throat> Is it the practice that actually is designing it for learning or is it the conversations around the practice and why we're doing the practice? Is it the, the perceptions and the, and, and, the, and the, I guess, the thought gathering, the information gathering, insight gathering, if you like, of the players to understand, actually, this is why we're doing it. This is where it fits the game. Does that align with your considerations and your perception of your game? Because, um, you know, the, the, I think, you know, we, we spoke about this briefly the other day as well, about the, the phrase of, when we're looking at the game and when we're observing players and their game and the way they play, whether it's in, in this match day or in the training sessions in particular, are we observing through our own experiences and our eyes or are we observing through their experiences and how they're perceiving it, right? And I think it's two very different things. How well are we doing those two things? How well are we understanding that actually they're considering this element here as pressure and not the element that we would potentially associate as pressure in the preparation of planning for them ahead of that? Does that make sense? And it I does, think, yeah. Can you elaborate? Like it, it, when you're yeah, talking I mean, about their like, eyes, what do you, yeah, what do you I mean, mean and, and even the coach's perspective? Well, you know, a very basic example is is I'll use you know, let's just say Harry Maguire and Neymar as an example. Pressure for Neymar is probably um, less than a yard of space with two players on him, as an example. Pressure for Harry Maguire is twenty yards of space with no one on him. Right now, if we're if we if we're looking at it from that perspective, understanding well, the variables might still be consistent, but actually, the depth and the the space and the length and the width of the space and the time around it is really what dictates the pressure for them. But we're we're making assumptions there based on what we think of the player's ability to cope, rather than the player's maybe own perception of wanting to cope with that situation and wanting to unpack it. So, for instance. You know, we're making an assumption there that Harry Maguire might need that space, but actually he might thrive off the possibility of less having less time and space because actually that's what might ignite him within to the within the practice, if that makes sense. And it's almost there's no right or wrong to that, but how much work are we doing as coaches in session, ahead of session, post session, to actually establish and you know clarify for ourselves and for the player? Well, at what point does the pressure become too much for you? rather than based on my own perceptions and observations. And the pressures that, that we're observing, is it pressures because actually there's a lack of consideration of some of the variables which are actually impacting on their performance within that moment. Whereas rather than adjusting the pressure levels, if you like, it might be that conversation say, well, have you considered these as variables? You know, it could be X, Y, Z, but at the moment you're only considering Z. Have you even thought about Y and X? And all of a sudden you now bring that to their attention now our observations are coming from a completely different perspective because we've got the understanding and the rash, you know, the, the clarity that they've got the variables to consider. Now, yes, the pressure's still there, but they're actually aware of where the pressure's coming from and what's impacting on it. I don't know if that makes sense. It's a bit long-winded, but hopefully it does. But then it's just now looking at, well, how much of that is actually aligned to designing the practice for learning, aligned to the coaching behaviours that we didn't, you know, 
exhibit within the session and then obviously how the players then perceive those behaviours and whether they actually, the behaviours that they want you to align to the session and your delivery as a coach are actually something they expect or is it something they're not aware of and have a real understanding as to why you're behaving in a certain way as a coach as well. So how much clarity on there is there for the players around, actually, I'm going to coach you in this way, these are the reasons why. Or is it, I'm just going to coach you, here's the practice for learning, you know, let the game be the teacher. But fundamentally, there's no real clarity for the player in any way, shape or form on any aspect of the delivery or the planning of it. It's a bit long-winded, I know, but I don't know what your thoughts are. No, about. it's good. It's good. I mean, it ultimately comes back down to, and I know we're going to unpack this, aren't we, in, in the webinar, but what does pressure look like? You know, what does that actually look like in the mind of the player? And what we, I guess you were even alluding to that, is like what we might perceive as pressure or in a difficult moment for the player, they might not, or vice versa. So it's it's recognizing that. And I think, you know, one way around this is also like everything's about clarity for me. It's how can we get a better clarity on what we're doing and why? So, you know, for that, it's how we're priming them for how they land to the training session. So what information are we asking them as questions to go away and think about? And even like what we're sending to them as resources that will get us that answer, Yaz. Because then you might be like, oh, I've got, we'll get a better gauge, if you like, a better feel on where they're at and that pressure. But for me, it's the language piece as well, because, um, so I can see your hand up. I'll stop after this. It's uh, I think the language piece is key because of coaches, how well do we plan the vocabulary that we're going to use in a training session? Because I can tell you, you know, a very short example in Morocco, when I was working there within the DTN. I used to plan the vocab. I planned all the sessions in French, obviously, but I'd plan my, my sort of coaching points, if you like, my bullet points in French because it are linked with the principles, but there were clear and concise sort of buzzwords, if you like, whether it was around how we break lines, so Casalaline or Casadaline, uh, or, you know, set traps, pose de piège, things like this. But those would be like my taglines, if you like. That would be the focus point of the, the principle. So we'd have these sort of lines, but then what it meant to the players. So it's all well and good having that vocab, um, but... If they don't know, well, we're not going to be talking on the same page. So how can you again comes back to that check for understanding so that with what we their definition of this setting traps or whatever it may be is the same as mine. Sorry, as I won't go off too far because I know you got a point you want to bring it back to. Yeah, no, it's it's more just an example I had in my head that I didn't want to forget, to be honest. And it was you know, as you were speaking, it just made me think, you know, I had, I had a situation recently where I was working with a group of players on um, some out-of-possession work and the practice was overloaded. Well, they were underloaded, so it was overloaded in the, in the opposition's favour. And they were like, well, this is really hard. Like, why have you given them more players? And I said, well, if it's really hard for you, what must it be for them? Well, easy. Pr- precisely. I want to make it easier for them so you've got a greater challenge in front of you so that if you can then handle that challenge, well, that's going to help you get better. But if I give you balanced numbers or even more than them, you're not going to be challenged. And I think it's just, again, you know, linking back into what I was saying earlier, is giving them a real understanding and, and, and recognising, well, this is why the practice looks like this. These are the areas that we now need to focus on as a result of this. And getting, I think, and I find that from my experiences, especially that one in particular, they... With, the, with an understanding of why things have been planned in a certain way and the potential benefits it has for them, it's, it's a great, you know, it's, 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 there's a door there for them to get some more credibility with you or rather the other way around, for them to walk through and you can get more credibility with them. And, and I think it's such a great way to do it because if they understand that your planning is, it is actually thoughtful, it's not just... We're going to rock up. We're going to do a session, and it's, and and that's it. And you know, but but that's that's coming back to you know when you talk about designing practice for learners, but actually setting that environment where they feel comfortable to challenge the practice. They feel comfortable to understand that actually the coach will not just fob me off with any given answer. He'll actually give me a a, a, a thought thoughtful conversation around why we're doing certain things. 
And I think that bit is so important. And it kind of just linking off the back of, you know, what you've talked about there about, you know, making making it specific with the language. We've got to also take into consideration that for some of these players, they might have never even been exposed to any sort of technical language. And if they have, that language, like you said, might have meant something very different to them where they've come from or what their experiences may have been with the coaches that they've come, you know, been coached by, the experiences they've had in the environments they've been in. So just, you know, it's making sure that there's an aligned and agreed terminology for certain things. Is You know, it's, it's one of the key things I'd always add on to that as well is every single, you know, bit of coaching that I do with players, I always try and attach it to a visual so that even if they forget, the, you know, if the language changes, when they move to another environment and a certain concept is is being explained or referred to, the visual's not, the visual hasn't changed. Yes, the language attached to it might be different, but they still understand the visual, and that so therefore is making it easier for them to transfer that concept across to different environments, if that makes sense. So yeah, I just wanted to share that before I forgot. Um, no, great point, because the visual for me is even in the beauty of the design, isn't it? So like, if if we're working on that, let's take movement to receive, right? Runs to receive. So if we're working on that principle of how that like how they're moving in order to to create space for themselves or the teammate, and how that links to then of being us being able to play forward or break a line or whatever it may be. Well, we've got to look at the detail of well, what are we focused on? Is it the movement in front, behind, in between? Is the language of the challenge will play between, stay between? Because then that might be a focus for how we're getting them to play in between lines or stay between lines for certain players. But for others, it might be offers in front to receive or whatever it may be. So then what rewards and challenges are we giving the players? Well, like the visual for me then links to where does this problem occur on the field? Like I know I'm just thinking back to that video me and you spent four hours on the other day where we're looking at these actions players are making. But the actions that are happening on one area of the field with certain players are different to another area. So it's what problem are we trying to solve? So I think that visual piece is key because anything we do has got to look like their game. Their game being the key word. It's got to be so representative, hasn't it? So that, to your point, Yaz, it does transfer. But, but I think, you know, it's a great point as well. I think just to kind of build on that, it's not just representative in isolation. And what I mean by that is, I know this is a bit of a touchy subject for some, but using the Rondo, like, yes, you know, you can make the argument that you're making, you know, you're working on the ability to play quick, the ability to pass the ball, the ability to receive effectively, the ability to deal with pressure. But it's out of context to an extent, depending on how the practice is designed and how it looks. But I'm just looking at a basic traditional rondo, right? But as soon as you throw that context into it, I, I mean, there's no right or wrong. But I've, I guess you know, and I, and I mentioned, I spoke about this the other day as well. I've, I think, in my own coaching in particular, I've arrived at a point where I just can't fathom the idea of why you would, if there is no context attached to it, and you know, just because it, can, you know, it's like. I can, you know, the best way to describe it I can think of right now is I've got a car and I've got a bike. They both have engines. I can't say that, well, you're going to get practice on the engine using my bike and it's going to allow you to understand how the engine in my car works. It, 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 it's got some similarities, but, fun, but if there's a fundamental difference once you, once you, you know, once you now break it down and start trying to link it to all the other parts within the mechanics of the car, if that makes sense. So, you know, I, again, don't want to go off on a tangent and get drawn into <laughs> but I love it. The point I'm making is that it's still got to be context, right? There has to be context. It can't just it can't just be practice in isolation just because it involves passing or just because it involves receiving. Yeah, but does that pass look the way it would in a game? Is the is the tr- you know, is the thing that triggers that pass to even occur present in your practice? That doesn't mean they have to get that same pass consistently because fundamentally that's not going to happen in the game either. But are well, the very after then interacting contestive present. Well, that what you're saying there is bang on because it's we're not isolating mechanics, are we? To 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 supposedly solve a problem that's based on this ideal technical model that's shaped by the coach. 
what we should be doing is thinking about how we can create an environment where the players can skillfully adapt their body based on their interaction with the problems that they face, whether that be where the player is getting closed down, how they're attacking the ball, whatever. I mean, I'm sure Daniel will talk about this. I know he's listening, but just where, where a player is looking, searching for information from that psychological piece, how are they using their brain? How are they looking and, and, and searching for information in order to, to come up with the best solution? So, yeah, I mean, no one's ever got as you know, <laughs> isolating any techniques. I mean, you used the car analogy, didn't you? But the car's probably not a bad analogy in the sense of when you learn how to drive, you didn't spend hours and hours on the, the correct technique on how to hold a steering wheel. Now, they may have said, you know, and I'm going to use this point, please. It, it, you know, it's like you want to hold it 10 to 2 and 10 past or whatever it was, right, is the best way. Okay. But then they didn't spend hours on it and the fingertips and all this micro stuff, right? Nor did you, you drive the car in and out of uh, blooming cones. You went on a quiet road. Well, there will have been some traffic. I know it's different in the US, but in the UK, quiet road where there will have been some traffic and you're gradually getting better. And as you can deal with more time and space and pressure, the, the anti, the difficulty, the challenge is ramped up to the point where you're on the road more, isn't it? But ultimately, even when you pass your tests, you're not a good driver. No one has ever said, I've now passed my test, I'm a good driver. There's that famous phrase, isn't there, where everyone says, you don't learn how to drive until after you've passed your test. And when I look at everyone who's ever driven, everyone holds the wheel differently. Whether it's through lazy, whether it's through bad habits, whether it's through whatever, we'll adapt because of how we want to manipulate the environment. But we get very confident and competent at doing certain things, don't we? Whether that's going through gears quick or whatever it may be. But yeah. we adapt quickly because of the environment. You learn to drive by going on busy roads, by dealing with weather conditions, by dealing with bumps in the road, by dealing with all you know a driver who's undercut you and you've got to make a decision or you missed your exit. So oh, these are things where we've got to design environments linking it back to the football piece for but, learning. But it's also, it's also Whereas giving them those that. bumps in the road, isn't it? Well, yeah, there is that. But fundamentally, what you're really saying is exposure. I mean, you know, I think yeah. on, while you're on the topic of driving... Well, it's like, reality, mate, isn't it? It's reality-based, isn't it? It's well, well this is reality. it. So, I mean, I, I, as, you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about... I'm actually thinking about my dad. My dad knew how to drive at the age of 10. He taught his <laughs> older brothers how to drive because he was already doing it. So he had the, he had the experience before you know, quote unquote, he was at the age where that experience should have been given to him. So it's, you know, the, you know, it, and I, and I use that to, as an example to kind of people say, you know, people challenge the idea of unopposed practice. When I have these conversations with them, they say, well, when would you start with the opposed work? And my view is, well, actually as early as possible. I mean, I would start with the, the, the opposed work, you know, and it, sound, it might sound crazy for some, but I would start as early as four years old. If that's when they're going to start playing football. If it's if it's three years old, then put them in. I was I was thinking about this today. I got I got I got two my two younger sons, who are three and two, haven't really started playing yet. But I'm thinking, well, what better way to start than one v one against against your older brother <laughs> at the or you know whatever age and stage that you you guys decide you want to start playing if that's what you want to do. But fundamentally, you know, I, I, I think I talked I spoke about this the other day, and the more and more time I spend on, uh, thinking about it is unopposed work, in my opinion should be left to the quote-unquote elite end of the game. Not ex not exclusively, but if it's going to be a, a, a fundamental part of a training programme or, or, or of some sort, if you like, I think it should be left at the top end of the game. Not in terms of being professional footballers, but just those who have lots of experience. Because I feel like the only, in my opinion the true way that you can really maximise the the impact and the effects of unopposed activity, if you like, is if you can understand the context in which those techniques or those moments that you're practising should be applied and could occur within this game. Therefore, you're able to, through your experiences and understanding of the game, able to contextualise it and visualise it more specifically around 
the exact moments when you might do a chop, the exact moments when you might do a step over, the exact moments when you might slow your press down or whatever that could be. You know, and and again, I, this is not digging anyone out, but I'm looking at certain sessions. I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you're doing all this unopposed work, but as soon as you throw a player in, they, that player that you're working with would never operate in that way. They might make some of those decisions, but fundamentally the way in which they're performing the action, the intensity that they're performing at, the mechanics of the movements they're performing will will fundamentally be different as soon as you throw an opposition player in there. Therefore, what's the, what's the point? Because if you're now thinking about the experiences that, and your experience, you know, and the visualization aspect of actually knowing, do you know what? As the one, I'm going in a one v one. Say I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing that I'm going to be playing against Rio Ferdinand, or I'm visualizing that I'm going to be playing against John Terry. Well, as soon as you've got those two visuals in your mind, you're going to have to come up with different solutions because they're going to operate in a different way when it comes to one v one situations. Yes, you might not be able to recreate the movements. You might not be able to recreate the exact physical aspect that they provided, but you know they're put, they're putting in front of you. But if you've got an understanding and consideration and appreciation for the variables that they will present as individuals then you can truly, in my opinion, start to work on differentiation of technique and you know mechanics that might work to kind of counter those problems that you're faced with. Without that experience, without that clarification of understanding of the variables and without the experience of and knowledge of what those situations could look like, I, I struggle to see how it can be really beneficial for players. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a benefit, but I'd always go back to this, Gerard, and I say, well, why would I want something that just works rather than something that I know could work better? If that makes sense. Again, I've gone a bit off a tangent, but go for it. No, no, it's good. And it'd be great to, you know, anyone who's listening, what are your thoughts? You know, if you want to disagree or agree or add on to anything, you know, love to get people uh, joining as well and speaking. You know, if anyone wants to add anything, um, I mean, I would say ultimately we... It's just, an, you know, the point that you've made there is basically suggesting that if you're training unopposed, which we all know, um, also you're going to get good at dealing with stuff without anybody in front of you. And the minute you put that pressure in front of them, it breaks down. And that, that's even in the same in research because they've found that players who are having to make these decisions typically rely too much on the coach. Where and then when they're faced with a problem they've never seen before, it breaks down under pressure, which is explicit information. Whereas if it's implicit, we know that learning happens better and there's a better retention and there's less breakdown under pressure. And surprise, surprise, the game of soccer and football is based on pressure. So to your point, Yaz, it's it just in some cases it begs belief. I think what's that famous phrase? Got to rely, you know, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. But that's actually could summarize your point there, isn't it? In that if you're only preparing them for this, they're never going to be able to do that. Now, the question is, how do you become skillful as a coach in skillfully adapting that challenge? Because now that's the sweet spot. Because for some, it may be too difficult to do a certain, you know, the 1v1, the 2v2 or whatever. And that's okay because that's part of learning. They're going to make mistakes. But then it's what rules or or rewards or challenges are you putting in place, whether it's safe zones, whether it's whatever it may be, that can help the players get a little bit of success as well as learn and deal with the mistakes as well. And that's where you can skillfully sort of navigate that pressure point, if you like, along that continuum for each individual player. So if we're really talking about designing practice for learning, Yaz's challenge might be higher up the ramp just because he can deal with the challenge. But mine might have to be lower just because I might need a little bit more um, safe uncertainty, you know, or safe certainty within the practice design. So for each individual person, it will look slightly different. Sorry, Yaz, I know you got a point and Tony wants to jump in as well, which is great. Yeah, Go on, just, Yaz. Just... I think for me, look, it's it's about finding the flow, right? The flow of the practice, uh, and it's one where the challenge isn't too great for the players, but the challenge isn't too too low either, yeah, right? And they're hitting that sweet spot, and it, you know that that could be slightly different for every single individual within the group. But fundamentally, what you're looking to do is 
place conditions, challenges, constraints, however you want to view them, in a way where if you're designing the practice for learning, that could look different for every single individual in the practice. It could look different based on the the, the, the you know the priority outcomes of the practice. But what you, you also got to look at within that, and this is this is just a, a question I want people to maybe think about is what determines success? What dictates what success is within your sessions? And and it's a conversation I've had with many coaches recently around is it your player being able to do something? Is it your player being able to demonstrate they can do it more than once? Or is it a a, a a level of consistency quantified as a percentage, if you like? Um, and I think this is a really important piece, right? Because I've seen situations recently as a coach developer where coaches saying, yeah, that session was successful. But this person that they, they're they considering to have been successful within the session, they've performed the outcome maybe three or four times. Now, three or four times out of ten, versus three or four times out of 30. Where do you draw the line on what success looks like and what's not, what's not good enough, essentially? Go on, go for it, Jared. No, I think this is a great segue um, for what you're saying because a lot of the stuff you touched on there is going to come out in our webinar. So I thought I'd just share that with everyone just quickly now. So I've posted that on the in response to the, the event. So you should see that in the chat. Um, myself and Yaz are leading a two-hour accredited FA CPD webinar on developing decision makers. And a lot of the topics that Yaz has talked about just then and even tonight in general, um, we're going to uncover, we're going to unpack in a bit more detail. So that's on July 19th. Great opportunity for everyone to, to extend the learning, even if you're not necessarily with the English FA. Um, I, I still think it's a great chance just to, to come in and, and learn some extra stuff. So I just thought I'd add that in there, Yaz. Um, yeah, brilliant. Tony, how's it going? Good evening. Hope you're well. Good evening, chaps. Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Um, just working off uh, a bit of a hangover from yesterday. But um, other than that, we're all good. You know, I only come on here to uh, when when Yaz starts going on about bloody rondos and unopposed <laughs> training. I just jump on so I can... Fire back at him, but I'm not going put, to put him in his place. Put him in his place. We've all got a place. That's the good thing about it. Um, I think that one of the things uh, that you know that I don't come from a, a particularly um, educational, um, theoretical standpoint when it when it comes to coaching. I, I'm very much um, a, a practical person. I, I get your boots on and get your boots dirty kind of coach. So, in terms of the, the sort of the heading for for the Twitter space tonight, the design and practice for learning, and I'm as guilty as anybody else. We as coaches too often overcomplicate session design. If you played attack against defence or played a small sided game, you will be you coach whatever you know your is it your theme for that night. It will come out. It has to come out because. If you can't, if you're not doing that, then what is your practice for? You, if you design a, a football practice, which is essentially one team against another, that is pretty much, in, in my opinion, going to touch every player on the pitch, whether they're the focus or not. Which I know we've discussed on on other Twitter spaces. So even if you're working with the the, the players on the ball. What are the players around it doing? How are they affecting the game? And just by casually questioning them while your while your session's going on, hopefully the res- you, you'll either get the response that that you want, or you'll be able to give them the response if they uh, the right answer if they don't know it. Uh, well, why are you there? Well, because if I stay here, it keeps the other defender away from him, and he's now got a one v one. Real simple stuff like that, uh, and I just, I've got, I'm going to try and get back to doing when we start again next week. So much more um, opposed practice, but there will still be some unopposed practice in there. I'm sorry for you to to have to let you know that, Yaz. Um, but much more, much more game based stuff. Much more um, small sided games. Much more. Um, much more attack against defence because your football problems are going to come out. And that's what that's what you practice for. 
That's what we're training for. Football problems will only come out in football situations. So you have to manufacture them. Whether so, kind of went off on one there. No, I love it. I was going to ask you, Tony, if that because you've made so many good points there, which is one the attack v defence and just the environment, creating that environment where it looks like the game. You're giving them football problems, so that in itself is a great header for anyone listening. Is you design a practice for learning? What are the football problems that you want them to solve? And then do the activities align with that? You know, just in simple English. So I like that, and and. You talking about you know the games, creating little small sided games, games within games, keeping them playing because that's how they're going to learn. So if you acknowledge that, which you do, and you have done for many years, where do you see the relevance of the unopposed stuff? I thought I'd ask you that because you made such a great point that you said like you know I'm going to do this because of this. Well, where does that unopposed piece come in then? Because you know is that not contradictory to what you say, or like how would you fit that in? And do you even need to start with the unopposed? Can you not just go straight into the opposed? Especially if you're saying you want to do more of that work. Yeah, for, for me, you can go straight in, into um, opposed practices if, if that's if that's what you want to get out of the session. I would mainly use unopposed work. And, and I've, I think I've said this on here before. I've certainly said it on, on different Twitter, um, you know, threads where I'll jump on with people. Unopposed practice for me can be used to develop technique to refine technique um ball on a wall is one of the greatest training methods ever and that's unopposed practice you know so for me that's where a lot of that comes in i'm not a fan of um i think yaz mentioned earlier on about step overs and and cruif turns i'm not a fan of doing a step over when you get to a cone because your opposition will move so do it in a in as in as real an environment as possible but I remember back in the day when I used to teach the old level two, probably before it was called a level two, when we used to teach technique. And if someone was struggling with a, um, a, a step over, a double step over is a classic example. You look at the number of people who do that with the, and their foot goes over the top of the ball rather than round the front of the ball. Well, you can do that with a static ball. And I, I understand that the picture then changes when you put opposition in. Unless you get the technique, if you're going to step over the top of the ball when you're doing a step over, for example, a good defender's going to nick it out from underneath your foot. That's what I'm looking for. That would be my key. If he lifts his foot over the ball, I can pinch it now. But if he steps around the front of the ball, the only way I can get the ball is by kicking him. That's That'd be my take on it. Tony, there's a lot in there, right? So let, let, let's, let's start with this. I think first and foremost, the, the, the challenge I have in the consideration I have around like, the unopposed piece. And I want to make this really clear. I don't believe that it doesn't have a benefit. My, my question and my consideration always be for coaches. Let's use your example of ball in the wall. Why would I spend my time in my session doing ball in the wall practices when I can encourage my players to do that away from the environment and expose them to things that they would potentially not be able to do without being in this environment? away from the environment if that makes sense right and it's not it's not there's no right or wrong i'm just trying to you know rationalize for myself or why would i why would i encourage players to do activities away that that are easily doable away in the environment the second piece you talk about technique and i think this is so important because you know you, you know as well as i do the things have changed over the years massively around where the focus of coach education has gone and you know there's no right or wrong there because i think there's many benefits but as with anything there's gonna be pros and cons right where, where I think I've arrived at in my own perception of things is we have to look at technical information. We have to look at technical detail. But fundamentally, we have to potentially maybe look at breaking it down as subjective versus objective detail. Um, and, and an example of that could be, you know, you talk there about passing the ball. Well, yes, there might be an ideal technique, but the ideal technique is also linked to a specific situation, right? As soon as you change the situation, the ideal, ideal technique changes. So, um, passing the ball actually becomes so many different actions within it and then you've got one key aspect you're looking at as well if I'm talking about passing a ball and it's me and you 10 yards apart well one thing's for certain unless I hit through the back of that ball it's not going to you if you're in front of me so that for me is an example of what I look at as the objective piece of detail but the subjective piece is actually now well 
is the ball is the ball in the air? Is the ball bouncing? Is it ball just off the ground? How far is Tony? Is there a, is there an obstacle in the way potentially? As an example, and these are where the subjective pieces come in, right? So, if a player is sliding across on the floor as I'm looking to play you that pass, well, I might have to use a different part of the foot, and then you know maybe look at using the toes or whatever just to put a bit more pace in it rather than the side foot, which might take a bigger motion. Because if I'm striking through with my toes, then I don't have to break my stride or you know just looking at it from the you know from that perspective. So yeah, there isn't you know there is there will be ideal techniques, but fundamentally we're gonna use whatever works to get to the outcome. But the thing that can't be compromised is where on the ball it gets struck. So you know my, my challenge to what you said, and you know maybe a thought for coaches to start to think about is: Are we coaching enough with the objective pieces and allowing creativity and freedom around the subjective pieces based on the context in front of them? But then this links back into something that we spoke about earlier in the conversation in that. Are the players aware enough and well enough of the variables which are actually impacting on their ability to perform techniques and effective decisions in games and what you know what then influences that potential decision in a game? And then you know then the challenge then comes to the coach. If you don't know what those things are, how are you going to help the players understand it? And if you're not actually designing practice and considering these things, how can you have those conversations with players to establish those things? And then I think the piece beyond that, it, it now looks at, well, you've got a lot of organisations and you know, where you might have some people, senior people in the environment, experienced people in the environment who've ex- got exposed to some of these things. But my question to you know everyone in the room, really, and we've got some really experienced people in the room working all around the world, is... If you don't have those experienced individuals in your organization who maybe have exposure to some of those technical considerations, some of those deeper, finer level practice design considerations and and the rest that comes with it, what is your advice and what do you encourage coaches to do to start to think about where to develop those things? And I'll leave it there. Gerard, Tony, over to you. Yeah, I mean, there's a ton of really good stuff in there. Absolutely. Um, What we don't, know um until you know your players really well is what's their level of what's it called now that unconscious competence that they they know how to do something they know how to get the ball from a to b or from b to c but they they can do it but they don't know the technique they don't have that background understanding and like you said or or like i think you were, were saying at the end there us as coaches we have to develop that um, that knowledge of those technical um, details that aren't taught anymore because, you know, it's great. He can get it from there to there, but he doesn't know how he's doing it. What about his ne- What about his mate next to him who can't do either? So I, I, I'm not disagreeing with what you say at all. I'm just thinking that, co- and again, it's probably going off topic. Coach education has become more, I don't know, more about formations and game plans and method and, and not enough about methodology just an opinion I don't disagree Tony to be fair because I've seen it even with some of the stuff I'm doing over here in the US where they're spending far too much time on exactly that formations and other stuff periodization and, and God knows else what but actually like we need to get the basics right, which is how to coach. And a lot of the cases, we haven't even got that. And we're talking about some of this stuff at the the earliest licenses. So I do agree with you. Um, I, I mean, my take on the unopposed piece is that there's a place for everything in terms of design and learning. My, my preference and my bias will be more towards if it's going to be unopposed, there has to be some kind of interference, some kind of contextual interference, meaning that, you know, players could be passing the ball unopposed to each other, but there's multiple balls going and therefore multiple groups of players, whether they're in pairs, whether they're in threes, moving in or out of each other without touching each other. Because then that creates some kind of chaos, some disrupts the speed. They've got to think about how they're moving the ball without passing the ball and hitting another person's ball or whatever. Or it could be that there are there are other types of chaos involved or other types of pressure 
But for me, there's got to be some kind of threat or choice on the ball. So they're, they're at least having to adapt their body in different ways. And I think the skill of the coach is, how do you recognise how to go in and support those players? Whether that be collectively, if it's a global message, or individually. Because I think, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with this, Tony, and maybe others as well, probably a large result of the reason why coaches don't often like or... Uh, I'm not saying this is the case for you, but others, you know, don't like or don't tend to spend too much time in more games. It's probably because it moves too fast. Whereas if they can put them in a drill and they can isolate them and put them in lines, they can actually move them and control everything about that practice. They can control the choices. They can control the speed of it. Their eyes can see it. So when it breaks down and they make mistakes, which they will, because they'll end up spending more time you know, the coaches will spend more time coaching the drill than the players, but they can give the corrective information, if you like. Whereas as soon as they're in a game and they're moving, now you're testing the knowledge of the coaches, come back to the piece you both said before, and you're testing their experience and their eyes and how quick can they identify and detect and, and diagnose the problem if they even know what they're looking for. You know, so I think that's where for me, if we're talking about coach education, where it should be is getting coaches better. I loved your term when you say, like, I'm on the grass, on the field, practical, boots in. I love that because that's what it should be. It should almost be like a pracademic. Yeah, you've got some theory, but there's got to be the practical. Get really comfortable at getting in on the grass, coaching in game experiences, because then you've got to be able to see stuff. And then we'll get better at the observation and diagnosis and what have you. Sorry, Yaz. Yeah, no, just just really quickly uh, before I forget, just tailing on the back of you know your your idea about chaos and having interference. I think, in principle, I would agree, but then I you know I, I think just a way to consider it and thoughts thoughts on coaches um, will be welcome as well. Is what I look at as almost a blended pressure approach, where, as an example, I'm thinking the best way to think. Uh, okay, I'm a I'm a wide player. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a wide player who's looking to put a ball in but I've got to beat my fullback you might have safe unopposed elements to the practice and then um, pressure moments within the practice so what that might look like as an example is if we look at the game and the way the game is situated the the fullback typically will operate in a certain area of the pitch as will the as will the wide player so the wide player could potentially start unopposed in that space it's a safe zone but they need to penetrate and defend or say beat the fullback in the area that they're operating so you might have a small box around that player and what you then do you've also you know you've given the time and you've taken off some of the pressure that comes of actually having to just do it freely and and, and in a fully opposed context you're giving time for the opposition to obviously just recognize the situation they're in but also the wide player to recognize okay when's the timing right and have that time to process the potential action that's going into it go into the box come out the box but you've got you've got to go in one side and come out another side of the box how you do it's up to you but one thing that's clear is that the fullback's going to be in that box when you're in there but the fullback will start outside the box and they can only defend with you in the box if that makes sense you can correct me if you know you can you can clarify if you're not sure but um no no i think those ideas uh, it's just another way isn't it it's like interference helps but it's not the only way, as you yeah, say. Like I mean, the use of safe, safe zones or whatever. The, the only reason I suggest the that of why we're doing it, yeah, isn't it? I, well, I think that's what I was going to come on to. I think the only reason I would suggest that, as opposed to just general interference, and I, and I understand the idea of developing, you know, introducing chaos and having people going in different directions and coming in and out. But I think we still lose. I think we still lose the context piece. I think the, I think what we need to try and do, and again, this is just my opinion, uh, you know, and I'm open for people to challenge it and even have other ideas against it. But um, I think what we need to do is just get get to the point where coaches are genuine, genuinely start asking themselves, is this in context? How do I get this to become in context? Because it doesn't have to be the game, but the more it looks like the game with actions and you know with the actual technical actions that we want to take place within the game and interacting with the live context of the game 
surely that's the best way forward to help these players develop and understand how to play the game. Because, you know, I was having a conversation with a coach yesterday and he was talking about, you know, he wants his players to become more confident. So he does a lot of unopposed practice because it makes them feel on top of the world. Yeah, but guess what? As soon as you throw up a defender in front of them, they, they, you know, they're, in the, they're, they're looking at dep- depression face on. Because they're not, you know, you're giving them false confidence. You know, the confidence you're giving them might think, you know, it might give them some sort of benefit, but actually, there's no difference between the confidence you're giving them and the confidence they can get from going down to the local trampoline and jumping up and down and having fun on that. It, that's in my opinion, and I'm and I'm being extreme there, but point I'm making is until it's in context, it, it, I, I can't see the benefit. Well, no, you're potentially doing more damage than good long term, arguably, aren't we? Well, that, 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 that's, that's, what, that's, the, you know, that's the question I'm just throwing out there where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent and personal development together to just one platform and you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favourite episodes with everyone that you can think of you can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net we look forward to hearing from you let us know what you thought about today's episode and until next time guys take care